moving towards the end, huh? Kind of exciting. What will follow? After the sermon this morning, we're going to have a time for question and answers, um, if you want. I mean, uh, it's up to you guys, but uh, we'll make it available And on this whole issue of gray areas and how we relate to one another in those terms. We've been studying Romans 14, the whole question of how we maintain harmony in the church, a church made up of diverse people with diverse backgrounds and even different opinions, people with different convictions about how we live out our Christianity. The subjects of disagreement are not key doctrines and they're not plain moral teachings, those things we all have to conform to, but these are non-essential areas, what are called gray areas, that are not explicit in Scripture. And uh, two issues mentioned in Romans 14, the two examples have to do with food, for one thing, clean or unclean foods, or contaminated food in a spiritual sense that had been offered to idols. Some said it was okay to eat anything, it didn't matter, and other people said they were very uh, punctilious about that and said, no, we shouldn't be eating things that are spiritually compromised by having been in the wrong places, maybe a pagan temple or something. Another issue was observing special days. Some people did, and some people didn't. And um, there was conflict over these issues. There are several principles that we've learned so far from chapter 14. I kind of want to review them. First, and uh, starting at the very beginning of chapter 14, the first principle was to accept one another, not to condemn or judge each other in these non-essential matters. So the first principle is accept the other people, not to look down your nose or condemn them or make judgments about their motives. Second, verse 5 of chapter 14, the second principle is to let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. Let people have their own convictions. That is, to fully respect the other person's conscience and convictions. You know, you can't win an issue you don't win by intimidating people to do what you're doing. That's not a victory. It might seem like a victory, but it's not. His conscience has to be treated as fully valuable as your own conscience. And if you've gotten somebody to change their behavior just because you intimidated them and you haven't won their conscience, then all you've done is hurt them, not help them. Third, None of us is God. That's a pretty easy principle. But that's really what Paul is saying. We are not God. We are all fellow servants. So to put ourselves in the position of God and judge the motives or the um, behavior of another person on these non-essential matters is just totally inappropriate. He is the great judge, and Paul says we will all stand before him. So we need to keep that in mind and have some humility when we approach these issues with other people. Now we saw in Romans 14 that in these matters he was considering one group he called the strong and the other group he called the weak. And the strong, as you read through the passage, you understand, the strong understand their liberty in Christ. They understand that Christ is the fullness of everything and that ritual and ceremony and things like clean and unclean and those kind of issues just kind of fall away. They don't fear contamination or ritual impurity because they know that Christ is above and greater than all those things and set us free from all those kinds of regulations. The weak, on the other hand, have a hard time letting go. They're holding on. To forget about idols, which maybe some of the weak once worshipped uh, in their own background, uh, that's just a, they have a, 
maybe not superstitious is not the right word, but they have a, a, a respect or a fear or a kind of an awe for, from where they've been. And they don't want to have anything to do with that anymore now that they're following Christ. And even a suggestion of something maybe that was connected to some kind of a pagan thing upsets them. So they don't want to have anything to do with that. And while a strong person may have liberty to just partake of meat that may have been in an idol's temple or not, the weak person says, well, no, that's compromise. See, they're kind of bound up a little bit that way. Perhaps they were Jewish. Um, we have some evidence in chapter 15 that the, the weak, quote-unquote, people were Jewish and that, and that they were used to Jewish ritual purity and clean and unclean foods and all the ways that the Jews, all the special rules they had in the first century for keeping away from pagans and not being contaminated by pagan people. You know, they were very fastidious I mean, all kinds of ways about that. And when they, a Jew becomes a Christian, he'd still have a lot of those ideas in his mind about uh, careful separation from anything that might have to do with idolatry. And whereas uh, another person might say, hey, it's not a big deal, to them it is a big deal. So there's differences of opinion. Well, the strong had a tendency to look down their nose at the weak, because they're weak. They don't understand. The weak, on the other hand, are looking at the strong and saying, they're not good Christians. They're compromisers. They don't care about these really important things that we care about. And so there's conflict and tension in the church. Hence the need for mutual acceptance, the need to respect conscience, and to have humility as fellow servants. But there's more than that. Last week we discussed the obligations of the strong. The strong have a need at times to take their liberty and set it aside. To forego liberty in order to protect and value the weak. By flaunting liberty in the face of the weak, the weak can actually be pulled into sin because if we, by our behavior, draw them to violate conscience, they're sinning by violating their own conscience. And we're, and we're training them in sin. And so that's not a good thing for the strong person to do. So, we listed four principles governing our liberty last time. First, realize that to hurt your brother violates love. Chapter 14, verse 15. Love is more important than liberty. Love is more important than liberty. And sometimes they conflict. So love has to always be chosen over liberty. So sometimes you have to forsake something for the sake of the person who is offended. And you just have to give it up. Second, we said prioritize the kingdom of God. Verse 17. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking... Those things aren't important. One way or the other, they're not important. So if you have to give it up, it's just as unimportant as if you're going to cling to it. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but what? Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And if those kinds of things are interfering with righteousness and peace and joy, then let them go. That's the principle. Let them go. Prioritize the things of the kingdom that really matter. If food is going to get in the way of peace, let it go. If letting some liberty go so we can all be part of what matters most can happen, then let's do that. Let's let it go. It's not important. Another principle, determine to build, not tear down. Verse 19. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. We are to pursue, chase after peace and edification, construction, building up your brother, not tearing him down. Temptation in churches is so often to tear other people down. If liberty tears them down, let it go. Better to build in love than to tear down and be free. 
Finally, and this is how chapter 14 ends, always live by faith. He who doubts, verse 23, is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Faith, we said, is the very life of the Christian. It's just who we are. And all of our actions and even our thinking have to spring from faith. So to intimidate somebody to act against their conscience actually is causing them to sin because of these last words, whatever is not from faith of sin. If they're choosing to do it because they're afraid of you or what people are going to think or that, you know, well, they're calling me weak and, or whatever, and that's the reason they're going to violate their conscience, then they're in sin. And the strong have actually pulled somebody into sin. That's not very strong to do that. Now, we come to chapter 15. And the first half, verses 1 through 13, continue this discussion of gray areas, the strong and the weak, and we'll conclude that discussion today. The idea of limiting, limiting liberty for the sake of unity. Now, these 13 verses are just loaded. We could do a lot of sermons out of here. <laughs> but I want to try to stay in the context, because, I mean, you could go a lot of directions with this. What, what are they, what's that theological term? Bunny trails, that's what it is. Yeah, you could take a lot of bunny trails uh, out of this passage, because there's a lot of interesting ideas in here, lots. But we're going to try to keep our focus on the subject at hand, okay? One of the interesting ideas that seems quite important here, in fact, it's the conclusion at verse 13 of the whole section, is the idea of hope. Hope. Now, you know, I outline this passage, and I'm following the logic of it the best I can, and I'm working with it, and I'm studying it, and it all makes sense, except it took me a while to see how hope fits into the subject of gray areas. It's like, why, why, is, he, why is he bringing that up? What's the point? especially to serve as the concluding idea. Verse 13 is the conclusion of it all, hope. But I think I see it now. So let me read the passage for you, and as you follow along, see if you can kind of find out where hope fits in. And we'll talk about it in a few minutes. Verse 1, chapter 15. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weakness, weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell upon me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles. I will sing to thy name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, There shall come from the root of Jesse, the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of of the Holy Spirit. Well, I think you can say for sure from this text that hope springs from Jesus Christ, right? 
from his person, from all that we know of him by the scriptures and by our own experience. To know Christ is to know hope. That's really a critical idea. We will see how this plays out as we go through the passage here. Let's start at verse 1. A word to the strong, among whom Paul includes himself. He says, we who are strong. He had that same attitude that, you know, foods aren't important and days aren't important and he really couldn't care one way or the other about that stuff. He would put himself in the strong category. Who are the strong? Remember, there are those who understand their liberty in Christ, who are not bound by ritual or ceremony or any superstitious fears connected to associations with paganism or anything like that. They know and they live in all that Christ is and all that Christ has done for them. Paul's word to them in verse uh, chapter 14 was, accept the one who is weak in faith, right? Paul said that acceptance is seen in not regarding the weak with contempt, not looking down on them, also, it means fully respecting their conscience, not attacking it, but honoring it. And that means going out of one's way not to hurt or offend them, which is contrary to love, but instead to build them up. That's what he said in chapter 14. Now, chapter 15 begins by building on these same ideas. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses. That means put up with the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. And then he uses that same idea to his edification, just like chapter 14, to build him up, not to tear him down. So our focus is not on our pleasures, pleasing ourselves, but on our neighbor for his good. That is fundamental Christian morals. The other guy's more important than we are. Our pleasure is not as important as the other person's strength and happiness and contentedness and growth in the Lord. That is, we live for the good of other people. That's what we're supposed to do. This is all the more true for the strong. Because the strong understand Christ so well. So that's really our obligation. You know, Luther gave that famous two-fold definition of what it means to be a Christian based on all that the teaching of the book of Romans and all the great doctrines of justification by faith, he said, a Christian man is perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And the Christian man is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Both those things are true. Because while we are bound to no law to earn favor with God, the very nature of grace seeks to form Christ in us so that our liberty is like his which is given for the good of other people. That's the whole idea. Lord of all, subject to none. Servant of all, subject to all. At the same time. If our heart beats like Christ's, it is for our neighbor's good his edification, his building up, not ourselves and our pleasure. That's the essence of the Christian life. Verse 3, even Christ did not please himself. Why would he say even Christ? Well, from this end of history and from all we know, we, we assume Christ is all humble and self-serving, I mean, not self-serving at all and giving of his life, spending himself for others. But let's face it, when God becomes a man, what are his rights? Shouldn't everybody have been serving him? Shouldn't have he had the very best? Shouldn't have he been on top of the world? Just based on who he was. But the reality was, 
even Christ did not please himself. That was a huge condescension on his part, which we often lose sight of. Christ did not please himself. His own words, Jesus' own words about himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to give, not to take, and I can't think of anyone who even ever accused him of being a taking sort of guy. Nobody says that about him. One of those rare times when you see a flash of righteous anger in Jesus directed at one of his disciples and his friend, Peter. Remember when Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. Remember when he said that to Peter? What was Peter trying to do? He was trying to get Jesus to act for himself. Jesus was saying he had to go to the cross and die. And Peter saying, No, Lord, that should never happen to you. Get behind me, Satan. He said that only at Peter's suggestion that Jesus act for his own sake to spare himself the cross. The way of pleasing self was Satan's way and he would have none of it. So he was very sharp in his rebuke. Paul's Old Testament example here, quoted. he quotes Psalm 69 here in verse 3, a messianic psalm, a psalm about the Messiah. It's a picture of the Messiah in prophecy. It shows Christ bearing the scorn and the hatred of men. The reproaches of those who reproach thee have fallen on me. Men that hate God are going to hate Christ as God incarnate. Christ willingly bore the hatred of men for God. He was mocked in God's place. He was scourged in God's place. He was ridiculed and crucified, all for being holy and for being sinless and pure and telling the truth. And, and you remember how they mocked him? I mean, it was so specific, mocking his kingliness, right? They put the robe on him after flogging him, the reed scepter they gave him, with things that usually made of gold and precious metals and jewels. They gave him an old stick to hold in his hand. They took a crown of thorns and pressed it into his head. And because he was a prophet, it says in the scripture that they blindfolded him, they tied something around his eyes, and then they punch him. And they say, come on, you're a prophet, right? Who hits you? Come on, tell us who hits you. And he wouldn't say anything. They hit him again. Just punch him in the face as hard as they could. Blindfold. Who hits you? Come on. You're a prophet? Ha, ha. They'd laugh and mock and scorn. What a king, what a king, what a prophet. And on the cross they mocked him too as he hung there. Save yourself! Yo, he's the savior, right? He saves people. Can't even save himself. We are asked to do so little in his service in terms of putting up with stuff by comparison, aren't we? Give up a favorite food? Give up some liberty? Matthew Henry, the old Puritan commentator, wrote, it says, he said, he bore the guilt of sin and the curse for it. We are only called to bear a little of the trouble of it. He bore the presumptuous sins of the wicked. We are called only to bear the infirmities of the weak. We should bear our brother's weaknesses gladly and please him and edify him because Christ would do that. That's why. These old scriptures, after all, were written for us to learn. Verse 4, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. There's our hope. Christian hope is not like the world's hope because the world hopes it's like, I hope it happens. When a Christian hopes, it's a sure thing. It's not a hope that something might happen. It's a guaranteed confidence that something will happen. Ours is a sure thing regarding our salvation, our standing with God, our future. We have the hope. 
We have the kind of hope where doubt has no place, the hope that sustains us even in very great trials. The scriptures were designed, Paul says, to put hope in us as we persevere and draw encouragement from them. Hope is exactly what we need. It's that, that anchor that secures our future in Christ. Well, what's that have to do with pleasing our neighbor? Well, I think everything. Faith teaches us that we can endure anything now for the glory that awaits us, right? I mean, we might have to put up with a lot of stuff in this life because we're, we're sinful and the people around us are too and weak. Christ suffered, truly suffered, unspeakable agony, but he knew what was on the other side of all of that suffering. Hebrews 12.2 says that we should be fixing our eyes on Jesus. Remember this text? The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the, on the throne of God. See, he saw through it and that helped him endure it. And the same with us. Our hope in Christ and in the scriptures and in all that we know about God can give us a lot of stability and strength here and now to endure things that might be just difficult. Our hope grants us the capacity to let go of some things now. You know, when I see people that turn their back on Christ because they have to have it now, it's such a pitiful, sad thing. No matter what faith they may have professed or their actions say, you know what, this life is all there is and I'm going to get my now no matter who gets hurt or what rules I need to break because, you know what, in their heart they don't think there's anything else beyond there. They don't think, they don't believe, as the psalmist says, that in God's presence there are joys forever. They don't believe that. So they've got to grab it now. That's a person without hope and it's a person without faith because hope springs from faith. True faith perseveres and draws encouragement from the scriptures that it's all true. It's all true. God loves me. God is in charge. He's wiser than I am. He has me right where I am for a purpose. His purpose. The people around me, they're the people I'm supposed to be ministering to. That's my job. Even if they're a little odd. And he will see his will for me through to the very end unto glory. Now that all comes from the new birth, from God's saving mercy, which puts new life in our hearts. The perseverance and encouragement Paul speaks of comes from God as well. And Paul prays that he would grant us enough grace to live in harmony. Verse 5, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grants you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You notice something interesting there? He wants us to be of the same mind and of one accord and speaking with one voice and all the while, what's the subject at hand? Our differences of opinion. Right? In all of our differences, genuine differences of opinion about certain things, we are to have the same mind and be of one voice. That means that being of one mind and one voice for Christ is not the same thing as being absolutely uniform in all of our opinions. Those are two different things. You see? You see what it means? 
We can be different in these gray areas, these non-essential areas, even passionately different, and still glorify God in our unity. And that's what a healthy church is. A church that can do that is a healthy church. Be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, he says. That is not perfect uniformity of opinion about everything. It does mean that like Christ, we live for each other in love. We accept one another and we rejoice in Christ and his salvation together. That we agree on. That will bring glory to God, which is our highest and best purpose. Look at verse 7. Wherefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Christ was not standoffish about you, sinner, right? Sinner that you are. So don't dare withhold fellowship from somebody else who's simply different from you. Think about it. God may be even more glorified by our love in differences than he would be by us all conforming to the exact same ideas and patterns of Christian life. Because, you know, if we all are little cookie-cutter, stamp-out little Christian people, well, it's just natural for us to all gravitate and kind of be on the same side and all that. But when we're different and we love each other and encourage each other and want to build each other up and support each other, that's, that's special. That glorifies God. We don't all have to wear the same clothes. We don't have to ride bicycles and wear white shirts. We can wear blue shirts when we evangelize with people. I and mean, there's not said not to be the same thing. What brought that to mind? I don't know. Bad boy. Now the verses that follow, verses 8 through 12, seem to point to a, a historical context that much of the conflict in Rome may have been between Jewish and Gentile converts to Christ. That would fit this whole issue of food and observing days that we talked about in Romans 14, 5, and 6. It seems likely. But even if others are involved, this Jewish-Gentile unity in Christ is a great illustration of the harmony that exists through hope in Christ. The common basis of unity is Christ, who came to save both kinds of people. Verse 8, I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. The Jews have a special arrangement with God. They have all these covenant promises. And Christ came to fulfill those promises to the Jews. Does that leave the Gentiles out? Nope. Verse 9. And for the Gentiles, Christ became a servant for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy because they had no promises. God is just gracious to them. And as a Gentile, I'm very thankful for that. As it is written, now he starts quoting the Old Testament. A bunch of passages from the Old Testament all in a row. Therefore I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles. I will sing to thy name. Hey, that's from the Psalms, isn't it? He starts overwhelming us with passages about Gentile salvation. And where does he get them? From the Old Testament. He quotes the Psalms. He quotes Deuteronomy. He quotes Isaiah. At verse 10, again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse. Jesse, David, right? Jesse was David's father. David, the Messiah is coming from David, the Messiah. Who, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles hope. And isn't that exactly what happened? Here we are, a bunch of Gentiles, mostly 99% Gentiles in here, worshiping. Christ, hoping in him. And there's our word again, hope. 
Paul takes that word and, and draws from it this beautiful prayer in verse 13, the wish. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice he calls God the God of hope. That's just what he is. And it is he who can fill us with joy and peace in believing. Notice, as always, the key role of faith here. Joy and peace in believing. And then finally, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know, I got a feeling that if, if verse 13 were true of us, and if we were filled with all joy and peace in believing, and if we abounded in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, we probably wouldn't have time or the inclination to put our brothers and sisters down and to start nitpicking about somebody doing this and somebody doing that and, and they're, you know, they're not up to stuff like us and we're, we're better, we've got this thing going and they don't have, you know, if we were living that, that wouldn't even be in our hearts to think that way, this looking down your nose stuff or causing the other guy. We'd have the love that Paul is asking us to have which glorifies God by unity and diversity and setting aside ourselves for the sake of others. Okay, we're going to take a few minutes and if you have any questions, don't be shy because somebody else, I guarantee you, has the same question you have. It's too embarrassed to ask. So, if anybody wants to just raise a hand, okay? Perfect understanding. No problem. Very good. No question. Don't be shy. I'll, I'll There's one. Okay, when you started talking this morning, you said, where am I? Hold on. You said um, something in chapter 13, and so I wrote this down, uh, verse 23, the very last verse. Wait a minute, maybe 14. Yeah, 1423. Okay. Um, so what, what I'm hearing that I need confirmation on is, um, if we're not sure about something, whatever it is, that we shouldn't do it because for us it would be a sin because we don't um, have a strong, strong conviction yet about that, whatever it is. Right. That's okay. right. If faith is not the driving motive um, for something, then you shouldn't do it. Interesting. <laughs> that doesn't mean you can't play hopscotch if you don't know me. Yeah. I have faith to believe that no, I No, but I mean that. going somewhere, doing something, right. watching something, reading something. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 The way you engage the world as a Christian, it needs to be from faith. And if it's not, you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't participate in it. Thank you. That's an incredible rule. And it's, uh, you know, it's kind of a neglect. Not a lot of people talk about that text, but that's a really strong principle. I mean, that, that affects a lot of things. Whatever is not from faith is sin. It's an incredible thing. But, you know, again, the key there is that idea of intimidating other people to accept things. We need to be really cautious about that. Drawing people to violate their conscience or trying to pull people to uh, do things that they're not ready for or... The uppermost thing on what? Movies. Because they're so much a part of our culture and a new Somebody needs to write a book about that. And people have... <laughs> But I mean, you know, the commercials that are on, you know, they're getting more, worse and worse. Yes. But yet, they're, they're, you know, they draw your attention. You think, well, that part is really cool. I'd really like to see that part. 
but then something goes in there and I'm like, well, we're not going to see that one. Right. You know, that's really hard. It is. And, and again, it's true. If you can't amuse yourself with faith, in other words, if faith is not a part of that activity, you should be doing it. If you can't do it with faith, leaning on the Lord, doing it for the Lord, you shouldn't be doing it. And that's true for everything. That's a, that's a powerful principle. Powerful. Any other questions? Way down there, Scott. <coughs> By the way, Scott and Julie, I have your Believer's Bible Commentary sitting out there. So I'll take a picture. <laughs> okay, my question is, um, you were speaking about how it's wrong to lure somebody from, like, say, what they eat or something like that. But what if you're doing it with good intention? Like, you're trying to show them, well, I'm doing it because of this, because of what I believe in. That right. That's where you have to be really careful. I, I think there's an appropriate place to, um, with goodwill, to instruct or to teach or to try to um, have somebody understand the liberty of a Christian. But if that person, you have to be really sensitive to where they are, though. If their conscience just isn't ready, you need just to affirm where they are and, and leave them there and let them do that kind of thing. Now, we're, not, we're talking about non-essential non areas, okay? Like, again, if somebody was a little bit superstitious religiously about this or that, and you said, hey, you know what? That's not a big deal. But if it is to them, you can instruct them. And I think that's a really good point you're bringing up. Where do you draw that line? But Again, if you're doing it without looking down on them and you're just trying to help them understand the fullness of the gospel and what that really means for your life and, and kind of freeing them, that's, I think there's an appropriate place to try to do that, but you need to be really sensitive to them and uh, drawing them out of it. People that come out of certain religious backgrounds, they might have all kinds of little things they keep or do that we would just say, you don't need to do that. But it's important to them. So at, at, at the same time of sort of setting forth our liberty in Christ, we need to be really, really careful about prematurely drawing them out of something that they have strong convictions about. It, it's just something, a care. I, I, I think you're right. I think motive is a big part of that and how you're approaching someone. But we just got to be careful about overwhelming people. Some Christians are very strong personality-wise and just, hey, you know, you got to, hey, lighten up. You know, get out there. You know, the Lord doesn't want you. He didn't care about that. He doesn't? Well, he always did. I, <laughs> I thought he cared about, you know, and just to tell somebody that without them coming to that for themselves. So I think you can share that in a gracious way and then let God do the work in their heart. That's a very good point. That's a, that's a hard one. Yeah. Now you really who's on uh, who's on TBN, and I really don't agree with her teachings. Yeah. But this girl is looking to become a Christian. Mm -hmm. And so she wants me to go with her, but I feel like I don't want to go with her because I don't agree. Do I go with her and answer questions, or do I go with her? She wants you to go with <laughs> I've her. I've already called the Hank Hanegraaff and had him, or CRI, and had him send me the stuff about this person. Are those guys down on that person? Oh yeah. I wouldn't go. Uh, um. I, well, if you went with your eyes wide open. But and, she thinks she's great, so I'm afraid I, I don't want to go. Does she, is she, does she want you to go to have, to share, to have your opinion of the situation? No, no, no. She, she wants, wants me you to, to be go involved. to and rejoice in it with her. She I wouldn't says, go. 
That's what I'm going to do. Yeah, I, would, I, would, <laughs> I would encourage you not to. But and, would I then wait for any questions she might have? Oh, yeah. And then use this material? Yeah. And very gracious But I don't say, want to go to her and ruin it. No, I understand that. But I, I think you could say, you know, I've got some information about this person and I'm really uncomfortable with where they... I am... Put it in these kind of terms. I am really uncomfortable with some of the teaching there and I know you wouldn't want me to feel out of place or, or odd because I, I... And there's really good biblical reasons why I think that's wrong and I'd, I'd be happy to share those with you. Um, but I just don't feel good about it. And well, she scheduled it so she could go straight with me to see Bill and get the Gloria Gaither homecoming concert. So as a part of that? No, no, no. <laughs> No, it's a different. This just happens to fall on the same day at different location. No, well, nothing to do with that. That does make it a little complicated. No, <laughs> but so it would not kill you to go if you're aware. But of I have the truth. to do a three-day thing. Yeah, that's a lot. You know, and then the other thing is absolutely, believe me, has nothing to do with it. It's a hundred miles away. But yeah. anyway. So, they're, but they're tied together in terms of your trip. Yeah. Yeah, that's hard. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Can I solve that problem? That's a hard one. Yeah, that's hard. Okay. Now, going with what he was saying back there, and you, you know our background a little bit, but when you have people who come and stay with you for a period of time, and you know that their conscience is weak, mm-hmm. do you go and hide everything in your house that they, they would have a problem with? Or, I mean, I've always wondered about that. How do you deal with it? Um, in a way that would be glorifying because, I mean, you know, they're coming into our home, but at the same time, I feel like, you know, I know what they're going to be saying about this, whether it's music, whether it's what I wear, um, that type of thing. I, I think you can't be totally governed in every way by the week. I mean, we sort of dealt with that a little bit last time, but, but I think it's your own home, I think, to, I think the key probably would be not to flaunt rather than to have to hide everything. I mean, you know, let's say their issue was alcohol. You wouldn't want to put bottles on the table at, at mealtime. If their issue was alcohol, they believe that was a sin to drink any kind of alcohol. They, and, you know, if you have a wine rack in your home, that's your business. But, but if you're putting it out and drinking in front of them, that would be kind of a different thing. Or, or if they had an issue about music, I wouldn't play it if they were there, but I, I don't think it would be wrong. I mean, these are, these are issues of balance. You can't be totally governed in everything you do, especially in your own home, by, by the weak conscience of other people. But in terms of, I think the motive is a big part of it. You're being respectful of their conscience. You're not going to flaunt it. You're not going to push it, you know. Um, and you could even ask them and say, well, does it bother you if this CD exists in this room? <laughs> uh, you know, or they're looking at your, whatever. Um, but I, no, I wouldn't be totally controlled in every way by it. Now again, if it was a long-term deal and you went to another culture where such and such was just out, out, out and right forbidden, I would just give it up forever. I would just let it go. I would take that out of my life. But if you think it was a short-term thing like that in your own home and that kind of thing, I would just find a good balance, have a good motive about it and not flaunt it. I think that would be probably the best way to go. And I'm, that's my opinion, okay? <laughs> I think that's the best way. But uh, I don't know if that helps. But can be tricky. Where the uh, where the gray area may be a little uh, towards the black, and you know where it goes over the. Over you want me to give you examples, or do you have some? No, you, 
maybe give a few few examples of gray very dark gray you know, areas. The, the gray, <laughs> no, no the, 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 just the gray areas and where some gray areas are, are like you say cultural but uh, where they don't really don't aren't biblical like biblical gray right. areas you want me to give you a biblical gray area well just just more you know examples like like we talked some some religions they don't have any music um, no music in their music. worship right um, whereas say in some cultures uh, you don't wear shorts I mean that's right more of a cultural thing yeah but dress would be well modesty is a good example that is a biblical principle to dress modestly now modesty does change culturally in certain ways I mean it used to be an absolute well, a horror to show your ankles right I mean so that does change in some sense but it's not an absolute change you can't run around stark naked and say oh, I'm modest I've, I've got a modest attitude I mean that's, there is some limit to that you know where that that goes and people actually do argue where that line is biblically and they try to find that line biblically and that's just so hard to do but I mean there are obviously Real, real issues with regard to that and, um, and like I said one time here we went around and literally interviewed all the guys and say what bothers you that women wear you know that's a good definition <laughs> what bothers you and then we told the gal that's what bothers you. that's what bothers men that's a good way to do it so they can learn to protect men's eyes you know because a Christian woman has that obligation that's one area um, but, but see if you start making a rule that's where churches get that's where churches get in trouble the rule is uh, you have to wear dresses that reach the floor all the time that's that's our rule you have to have things that go down to here in, in a culture where that just isn't even normal anymore um, that that is that's the church crossing a line into legalism and, and judging other people's consciences and that that would be a wrong thing to do but there are Christian women that probably need somebody to gently pull them inside and say you know that's not very modestly addressed I mean that's got to be there too so there's an appropriate part of that so that it's a it's a balance love has to be the the principle that overrides all of it I mean that has to be the governing principle in all of those issues but um, gosh, there's so many. You know, in the South, they have what they call mixed bathing. That means going to a swimming pool in, in your swimsuit. I mean, they call it mixed bathing. Like boys and girls can't go to the pool at the same time. In a lot of churches, that's a traditional Christian. Now, to us, that, in California, that sounds kooky, but that that was a real. That is still probably in some churches a, a real biblical principle to them. Now, if you went there and you wanted to minister among those people, you'd have to follow that. If you if you if you went boys and girls in the pool you'd shock them and hurt their conscience and you'd have to accommodate yourself to that Christian culture there but if one person came here and just said oh you know that, that whole big bathing thing that just that just horrifies me well I'm not sure we all have to just totally reject the beach or whatever just because of that one person but we also don't want to flaunt it to that person you go oh what's the matter if you got ah, come on to the beach trip you know and uh, you have to find those balanced things. It's like usually, I think when our youth group goes to an event like that, they, they have rules about a one-piece suit for the girls and stuff like that. I mean, there are like levels that we try to accommodate to teach modesty in a reasonable way, but not enforce some kind of code or, you know, um, things. So very hard to just select ideas out of there. But there are all kinds of issues. Um, you know, movies used to be totally forbidden in most evangelical denominations and churches. Now it's the exact opposite. It's wide open. And uh, that's why I wrote the book, because it's got to go back somewhere in the middle. There's <laughs> the biblical approach, and that, that's, the, that's what is valid for all of us. We all have to make a biblical approach to all of these different issues, and then have our own convictions about them. And what I was trying to say a few weeks ago was that in chapter 14, when he says, the one that doesn't eat does it for the Lord, and the one who does eat does it for the Lord, the key is, is that both these people are doing it for the Lord. It's not just being lax. 
Oh, I don't want to think about that. We've all, we, the, the point is, each one of us has thought it through. We've dealt with that modesty issue. We've thought about it for ourselves. We've thought about it for our children. We've set our own standards. We're going to live by those standards. If we've never thought about it, then we have, we're not doing a good job. See, on all of these different areas, entertainment, modesty, drinking, all those things, you have to think those through biblically for yourself. Biblically. And when you come to a biblical conclusion, then that's where you are. That's fine. That's what we need to respect, that that's where people are. Now, if you've got an idea and you want to share it with somebody and say, you know what, I, my opinion's different. I w- I'd like to share it with you. That's fine. Share it. Share it uh, with your convictions, but don't assume that everybody's going to have to agree with you. See, that's, that's the really key idea there. That's where that, ha- that balance has to come in. So I don't know. Can anybody think of any other good ones? Uh, <laughs> dark gray? Gray issues? Do you have your hand up, Mark? This is another uh, worldly amusements type question. Um, you specifically mentioned before like Harry Potter and, and the controversy that was surrounded that. I'm wondering what is the, the determining factor and how does one determine prior to actually seeing a movie whether it's appropriate or not? Well, um, you can't know everything, but um, I, I never go blind to a movie or rent a movie or anything blind. And by, by what I mean by that is that I don't know what's in it already in detail, content-wise. If, if you have a computer, if you have the internet, you can go to a place called screenit.com, screenit, and it tells you everything that's possibly offensive in a movie or a video that's out currently. I mean, everything in great detail. And um, in fact, you get sick just reading the details, just seeing it described to me is, is offensive, but, um, but then you know. You know all the language, all the even potential flesh things, um, all that stuff in advance. So the, I would, or any, I would never do that, or turn on the TV and watch something just blind without having some idea of what's coming because the rules are off. So, you know, we have obligations biblically with what our eyes see and what we participate in. So that's real important. But that, that those kind of websites are really helpful. They just give tons of information. So, and if you don't have it, call me up and I'll look it up for you. <laughs> I do that all the time, all the time. Any other questions? May? This is um, directly related to um, Catholic converts into Christianity. Uh-huh. And they, um, the Virgin Mary is very important to them. And I have had several run-ins where you go into um, a Christian home of people that used to be Catholic and they still have statues of Virgin Mary right. and they still have the rosary around and they still have these things how do you approach that with them like it's really not appropriate or I do usu- you say anything I usually don't say anything because I, I really do regard that as one of those kind of areas where they are bringing with them their religious background and their past and that is an area where they're going to have to work on now if they're making it if they start praying to Mary in the church um, that's different um, I, I would pull them aside and say you know what she's a dead lady and um, I'm sure she's happy in heaven, but she can't hear your prayers. Uh, she's not omniscient and omnipotent or anything like that. So um, I would share that with them. But um, if it was in their home and they just had a statue or something, um, you know, technically even a crucifix is a Catholic object, not a Protestant object, but a lot of Protestants have them in their home. I mean, because right. there's symbolism behind all that about Christ being re-sacrificed in the Mass and all that. And, but that's not, to me, that's not important enough. Um, okay to make a big thing out. If I knew though that that person had a, an ongoing devotion to Mary as a, as a source of prayer, I would probably try to talk to that person. Um, that would be a pretty dark gray theological area because it, it is wrong, um, but it's not, 
you know, if they were promoting it, that would be a really serious issue. But if they're just, that's sort of who they are, they just kind of need to be led a little more clearly. So, I, but I wouldn't make a big thing out of it. Okay. Anything else? Okay. I am always available if you have the question you don't want to ask here. Okay, so. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the great truth of the scripture. We just pray, Lord, that you would help us to be united in love, um, encouraging one another, supporting one another, building up one another in our faith in Christ rather than seeking it ever to tear down or to hurt anyone. And Father, we just thank you for being the rock on which we stand. In Christ's name, amen.